in order to achieve certain things, you have to put yourself out there a little bit. And uh, the clients that I work with, they, they need to be, again, open-minded and, and willing to experiment with that a little bit. Part of overcoming that is, is, again, analyzing what people want to achieve and then being honest with them, being real and saying, okay, if you want to achieve this, if you want to be a thought leader, then you're, you're going to need your picture and a profile on, on LinkedIn. That's just part of the steps that go there. Konnichiwa, minasan. Business Success Japan no podcast de yokoso. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Bukelman. My main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan specific communication skills, especially in business. While I can't and won't promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill. Piece of information or shift in mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. Today, I get to share a conversation with Anthony Griffin, a marketer and consultant for Japanese companies seeking to reach international consumers. He has a long history of living and working professionally in Japan, and I'm excited for you to learn from him. But before we get into the interview, let's go over some Japanese. In the previous episode, we looked at the Japanese term nemawashi. Ne ma wa shi. Nemawashi. Nemawashi refers to the work that Japanese people put into gaining consensus and buy in from others before a decision is officially made at a meeting. Be sure to check out the interview with Ken Okamoto to hear more about it. Today, let's look at another phrase that you've probably already heard quite a bit if you're learning Japanese. Gambate kudasai. Gambate kudasai. Gambate kudasai. This phrase literally means, please work hard, but it's also used in situations where, in English, we would usually say something like, good luck. So, in response to someone saying, Gambate kudasai, the other person would likely say, Hai, gambarimasu, to mean roughly, yes, I'll do my best. And now, without any further delay, let's get into today's conversation. All right, could you please introduce yourself to my audience? Sure. My name is Anthony Griffin, and I help Japanese companies communicate with the world. And I've been a communications consultant, trainer, and marketer here in Tokyo for Almost 12 years. Yeah, so you've pretty much settled down in Tokyo. Have you been in Tokyo for most of your career then? You know, it's most of my career, but not by much.、Um, my career, mostly in marketing, actually be began in the States in California. So、uh, I worked, of course, part time while I went to college, you know, at a re in a retail environment. You know, after that, I worked in customer service at a、uh, software company. And then I got into marketing, actually, municipal marketing for the city of Riverside. So, that along with earning my MBA are things that I did and got involved with before coming to Japan. So, then how did you end up in Japan? Wow.、Um, at this point, and, and then the narrative always changes as I grow older and, and 
think about the things that led me here. But at this point, I'm just going to say it's almost my destiny. Um, you know, I was born in the uh, 1979, but I grew up in the 80s and early 90s. And as you probably know, Japan was huge back then. And growing up in California, I was influenced by almost everything Japan. And that motivated me to study the language a little bit in um, college. And I had a Japanese teacher who introduced me to the culture. And that planted the seed in my mind of someday visiting this country. And that happened quite a bit later when I started working in marketing and I could take longer vacations. And long story short, after my second vacation here, I was just in love with the country. And I started thinking about how to live here. And within a year of that second vacation, I moved here and started working here and I haven't looked back. So what kind of job did you get to come over to Japan? I know it can be hard to find something in your industry when you're just trying to have a company sponsor your visa so you can come over. Yes, it is incredibly hard, especially if you are in a field like marketing, especially marketing in English, targeting English companies. So I came over like many people do as a business English teacher. And the reason I did is because the company that I was interested in had a lot of business focused schools. So fortunately, because of my previous experience, my degree and my um, marketing background, I was placed at a school in Shinjuku, right in the middle. So all of my students were business people. So I could continue to teach business, which is something I was doing before I came to Japan. And I could dabble in a little bit of marketing still and writing and things like that. And within two years, I was working in the head office, also in Shinjuku, where I could really have the Japanese company experience and visit all of these huge Japanese corporations throughout Tokyo and also global corporations here in Tokyo. Awesome. So then why did you decide to leave that corporate life and decide to start doing things on your own? Well, um, if you don't mind, that's, that's actually kind of a two-part story, I guess. <laughs> um, so the first part was basically I, I felt at my first company, I had kind of reached the glass ceiling. So it was a wonderful experience. I loved working there and I, I really loved my coworkers, but I wanted to do more and I wanted to do more marketing and uh, more business development. So fortunately... After working at that company, I was able to become a marketing manager at the ACCJ, the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan. And so there I could get back to marketing and, you know, digital marketing, running social media accounts and leading the organization's website redesign. And so that was a good about two years of marketing work. And then at that point, I really wanted to, wanted to combine everything I did, the training, the marketing, and I wanted to bring that directly to the consumer. And I just wanted to leverage everything I'd been doing my entire life and just deliver it to whoever wanted to hire me. And that's how I ended up working for myself. So why did you choose marketing in the first place? How did that align with your interests? Wow, no one has asked me that question in a long, long time. Wow, to be honest, 
I didn't start university as a marketing or business uh, major. So um, growing up as a kid, my dream was to program and eventually make video games, to be honest. And so I entered university as a computer science major, and I did that for about a year and a half. And I learned something about myself. I learned that even though I love technology to this day, and, I, and you know, I love experimenting with code and things like that, I did want something a little bit, I guess, more social at the time. Uh, being a computer science major was pretty isolating. So, you know, and I did okay, but it just wasn't fulfilling my desire at that time. So I started experimenting with other classes and fell in love with business and marketing. And I loved how business explained the world around me, unlike any other subject did. You know, if you study marketing, you're going to know how companies are trying to uh, influence you and sell to you. So when you walk into a store, you understand all of the tricks of the trade that these companies are using to get your money. And, you know, I just fell in love with how practical the material was and how versatile it was. So I figured if I didn't want to, you know, be a coder on a software development team or something like that, I could always get into the marketing side of the gaming industry or uh, the business side of the gaming industry. So that is how I first transitioned into marketing. Makes sense that you would be fascinated by kind of understanding more deeply how things work in the quote unquote real world. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then was there anything about marketing in Japan that was at all surprising to you or did a lot of the things really hold true cross-culturally? Wow. I, I think like most foreigners, when they first come to Japan, I was shocked with this whole concept of Japanese English. You know, when you pick up your can of coffee and it has the it has English on it, but it it is incredibly awkwardly worded or or e even funny sometimes. And when I first arrived, I thought, "Wow, this is going to be a land of opportunity and a paradise for a copywriter and a marketer." And I got so excited, but then eventually I realized that most companies aren't interested in changing that kind of English, the English that is used to market to other Japanese people. Um, there's probably technical reasons why the English is that way, because it works in Japan. So I was excited and surprised, but then disappointed that that opportunity wasn't as big as I thought it would be. So do you still encounter that with your clients now? that sort of Japanese English, does that come up much or are you more focused on other aspects of people's business at this point? It's, it's definitely a huge issue. Just the other day, uh, I was working on a project, working on a more natural mission statement and vision statement for a large Japanese company. Uh, what I learned, however, is even though most or a lot of companies don't want to change their awkward English, there is a nice pool of companies that do, and those are the companies that need to market their products and services abroad. And that's my space right there. I, I focus on the companies that aren't necessarily concerned about marketing to other Japanese people, but they're concerned about growing their business in English-speaking countries or growing their business with English speakers in Japan. Okay, yeah, that definitely makes a lot more sense. 
Something I'm just curious about is, have you ever encountered a non-Japanese company doing copywriting in English in Japan, but having issues with this sort of what type of English to use? Has that ever been a thing? Or is it mostly just Japanese companies using English in a unique way? As far as Japanese companies, purely Japanese companies offering English copywriting services, I, I know they're out there, but I don't encounter too many of them. Usually when I see that kind of firm, it's a foreign owned firm, for example. Uh, the, the problem and the market opportunity are just regular brands that don't use these firms and they think that their English is adequate or they think that they are using the right vocabulary or the right expressions or understand the cultures that they're interested in. So um, yeah, most companies, they just kind of go for it and put their English out there and hope for the best. They don't take the steps to hire these companies to give them the proper support. That's very interesting to me, considering people's impression of Japan, Japanese people, people in Japanese companies being so perfectionistic. Yeah, that, that's a, a good way to look at it. And, and that goes back to my initial surprise when arriving here is, yeah, there's a pursuit of perfection in almost everything here. Right. So then another major part of your business and what we kind of wanted to focus on today was the cross-cultural coaching that you do with companies. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Absolutely. So um, I'm excited to talk about this because I, I don't get to talk about this so often. So thank you for asking about it. But I guess the best way to start would be to show how my business works and how this fits into my business. So we talked about the marketing side, but a good 40% of my business is cross-cultural communications coaching. Some of that is training you know, individual clients or companies how to do what I do, be it social media management, content creation, giving presentations, and things like that. Um, and then part of it is working with executives and managers on cross-cultural business skills. So a lot of people are interested in, for example, MBA course content. Uh, networking is a big topic, how to do that globally and presentations, giving globally culturally sensitive presentations is also a very popular topic that I work with clients to do. I mean, all of that sounds really important. It sounds, well, not just important, it sounds essential for doing business nowadays, but why do you think the coaching in particular is so important as opposed to, for example, just hiring multicultural staff or learning as you go, interacting with people from other um, cultures, what role do you think cross-cultural coaching plays in businesses? Good question. Well, first of all, it's, it's, it's great. It's, it's wonderful if you can hire a diverse staff. However, um, as you probably know, there aren't a lot of foreigners here in Japan. I think we are around 2% of the population at best. So not all companies will have the luxury of being able to diversify. So that's why it's important to work with the staff that you do have and make sure that either they, first of all, they understand the markets that they're working with. And secondly, you know, if they need to 
hire someone or go abroad and work somewhere else that they are equipped to to do so culturally and professionally. So when you provide cross-cultural training, are you more focused on giving people specific tangible skills? Do you focus more on helping people kind of shift their mindsets to be more effective in other cultures? How do you approach developing people's cross-cultural competencies? I 100% focus on deliverable results. In fact, when it comes to mindset, you know, the, the clients that I work with and the people and companies that approach me, they already have to be in a, in a certain level of global mindset before we could even work together. So um, that starts, that includes anyone who is familiar with working abroad to companies that I call foreign curious, where they're, they're still very traditional, but they realize that they need to change, they need to open up a little bit, and they're willing to work with a foreigner to achieve those goals. So when, before I start any project, we have to sit down and determine what are the goals? Do you want a promotion in your company? Do you want to earn funding as a startup, for example? Do you have to lead a meeting you know, abroad in Silicon Valley? We, we definitely have to have clear goals and the mindset, at least an open mindset already needs to be in place. Otherwise, the, the, the coaching is not going to work and no value is going to be created. Having a student who kind of just wants to have you give them the information they need rather than wanting to actively participate and internalize it themselves. It's just night and day in terms of results for sure. That's right, because, you know, all the inter- information you need is on the internet, <laughs> you know. Uh, anyone can look up anything about any culture around the world, but to have someone who can guide you based on their experience and make a simulation with you and walk you through the process and be there as an accountability partner, that's what you cannot find on the internet. So do you focus more on case studies, practicing, um, you mentioned simulating situations. Logistically, how do you usually go about helping people develop these skills? Well, there's a, a variety of situations. So case studies definitely work for people who are interested in MBA school so or business school, excuse me. So people who are thinking about investing a lot of money and time in an MBA they might want to learn what that's like first before you know, going abroad to a school, for example. Or maybe they already joined a business school and they're anxious about how they'll, they'll perform. So in that case, you know, small, I can work with small groups or one-on-one to analyze case studies. Other popular formats for other popular topics include uh, bigger seminars about networking and giving global presentations. And, in these larger events, sometimes public and sometimes private engagements, uh, we can actually role play these situations and we can actually practice. So every seminar that I give or workshop that I give is interactive. So it alternates between a little bit of lecture and a little bit of practice. So by the end of those workshops and seminars, the attendees have experienced what they're going to need to do abroad. I mean, reading books before you go is very important, but having the actual practice, practicing what you learn before you get in the situation makes things go a lot more smoothly. So Exactly, exactly. And, and one of the deliverables, and it's a softer deliverable that, that I offer, is that feeling of, of 
comfort and, and confidence where without coaching, without trying these scenarios, you know, a lot of people are going to be just super nervous and uncertain of what they're doing. But after going through, you know, coaching or training, you know, we're always going to be nervous in new situations, but they can think back and, and remember how it felt to accomplish what they're setting out to do. So then going back to your students, do you see any common qualities among your most successful cross-cultural training students? Absolutely. The single most important thing is to be open-minded and be willing to try sometimes radical new ideas because to, to, to successfully operate in other cultures, you're going to have to do things that are quite different than what you're used to in your own. That's, that's just a fact. So if you're open-minded and, and willing to do something, let's say, let's look at uh, the whole spectrum. You know, on a simple level, a very, very basic tip, if you're Japanese and you are going to a networking event in California, you might have to get used to, you know, A, not exchanging business cards until after the conversation takes place, B, not exchanging business cards at all because, you know, that person you're talking to or that group of people talking to you are not necessarily a good fit, you know, or C, exchanging contact information via LinkedIn, LinkedIn and going paperless. So those are all behaviors that are radically different than what you would do here. And then, you know, on a bigger scale, for example, you might have to change a presentation that you made. You might have to rebuild it from the ground up in a Western style. And you might have to change how you deliver it from the ground up to a Western style. So you're going to have to probably take a lot of the bullet points and the graphs and take that out of your presentation or simplify it. You're going to have to change how you introduce yourself, how you conclude your presentation. So clients that are open-minded and, and are willing to take on those changes, uh, they will be successful. Looking at presentations, are there any other things that commonly have to change between what would be acceptable in Japan and in America? Well, it's, it's cliche at this point, but the, the death by bullet points. Um, so just having, you know, a wall of content on your slides, that's the biggest one. But to give you kind of a more unique, concrete example, one thing that I work with with clients is the introduction. So conventional wisdom says that when you do a presentation, you start with, good evening, my name is Anthony Griffin, and today I'm going to talk to you about marketing. And this is where the open-mindedness comes in. I guide people to say, don't even start by telling your name and topic. Before you say your name and your topic, start with a statistic or tell a short story or ask the audience a question and then transition into your name and topic. Now, individually, those techniques are well known as far as, you know, getting attention by giving statistics and things like that. But that order, putting your introduction second, it's risky, it's not conventional, but it's important to catch the audience's attention. And in a world where everybody starts their presentation with good evening, my name is, if you come up there and start your presentation slightly different, you're gonna grab the audience as well. So that's a quick tip that we, we often go over and a lot of people have resistance to that, but if they're open-minded and try it, 
they get it and it works. But on the other hand, how do you think、uh, a Japanese audience would react if somebody came in and tried to do that format as opposed to the more traditional format? Good point.、Um, you know, personally, I think it depends on the Japanese audience. So it's important to recognize that. And, and one of the most important lessons in cross cultural communication is that no culture is a monolith. So, studying culture is just a starting point、uh, to give you some ideas. But within every culture, there are different subsets of people. So, if you come to Japan and you're, you're presenting to a globally minded group of Japanese professionals, they're going to be fine. They might even recognize that technique from some of their TED Talks. However, Maybe if you go into a very traditional Japanese business organization like Kedanren or something like that, then you might have to kind of do the reverse and adjust your presentation style to the traditional Japanese way. So, this kind of cultural training and cultural communication works both ways. You know, if, if you're Japanese and you're going abroad, You're probably going to have to adjust to other cultures. But if you're coming from abroad and coming here, based on your audience, you're going to have to adapt too. So, this is not a, a one way street. I had a conversation with、um, Ken Okamoto that was a little bit similar. We were talking about meetings, but he mentioned that,、uh-huh. especially early on, before you've kind of learned how to read the air or kukiyoyomu. Uh, uh, yes. Well, in the process of figuring that out, it definitely pays off to do a little bit of extra research on your people you'll be talking to to see if it's more internationally minded, more traditional. So, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Absolutely. And, and, and that's just good presentation advice,、sure. regardless of, of culture. Is, you know, if you can, sometimes you can't, but if you can, find out who your audience is, you know, regardless. You know, how old are they? What is their experience level? What is their cultural background?、Uh, find out as much as you can and then customize your message for them. Absolutely. So, then on the flip side, are there any qualities you've noticed among people who maybe have a harder time? With your training or putting your training into practice? Yes.、Uh, the, the, the quick and, and natural answer is you know, people who are the opposite of open minded and, and willing to try new things, they're obviously going to have a problem because, you know, again, to reach other cultures and communities, you're going to have to be willing to do things、uh, different from the status quo. So if they're not willing to do that, You know, they're, they're just going to be stuck. But to give a less obvious answer that's unique to Japan, another failure point I see are professionals who use、uh, their English ability as a scapegoat for deeper culturally rooted communication problems. So I encounter quite a few professionals who speak English just fine. But they're, they're, they're still stressing out about international business and they don't know why. And so they frame it as an English problem. So, what happens is on several occasions, you know, new clients have approached me, and you know, knowing my background as a business English teacher, they approach me and say, Hey, can you teach me business English? And they're doing this in perfect English, by the way. <laughs> so,、um, you know, I, I, I try to be open minded and flexible and say, Hey, let's. Let's have a 30 minute, one hour chat and、um, let's, let's talk about it and see what we can do. 
So we, we sit down and we talk 30 minutes for an hour in English and, and everything goes smoothly. And what happens is by the end of that conversation, I'll say, look, we just talked in English very smoothly for the last hour. I don't see that as your problem. However, I notice you have anxiety about these three things, you know, traveling for business and, and managing a meeting, networking and presentation. Why don't we talk about some programs that can help you with that? And usually in going through that process, they transition from scapegoating English as their problem to getting down to what the real issue is. And people who cannot overcome that scapegoating issue, uh, they're probably not going to succeed, you know, cross-culturally. So um, that's something that you have to watch out for. Yeah. Why do you think that English skills tend to be scapegoated in those situations? I think about that a lot. And this is just my theory. I, I don't have evidence for it yet, but there's two reasons. Number one, I think language, is, it's, it's concrete. You know, it's, it's an easy target. You know, you can measure your English level. It's easy to point out weaknesses. And there are a lot of systems clear systems for learning English. So it's, it's tangible. So when you have to look at your problems and you have to choose between something fuzzy like communication skills versus something that has, uh, you know, structure, you're, you're going to lean towards the problem that you think you can solve. And then secondly, you know, Japan has a unique, clearly defined system for dealing with English. You know, you, you, you start at junior high, or earlier these days and you learn English and then you go through the Eikaiwa industry, which is very unique to this country. Um, so there's a system in place that people can use to tackle that and they think that will solve their, their problems. And, and sometimes it, it does. And we have this Eikaiwa industry that perpetuates the fact that English is gonna solve all of your global communication challenges and it's going to make you this super business person and it definitely helps um, there's a lot of good in the industry but there are also a lot of people who speak english just fine and they really just need some other kind of communication support so then you mentioned that um, learning culture can be a little bit of a harder thing for people to tackle how do you start with people what are some of the first things you help them with in general for maybe a more average situation rather than something too specific? Hmm, good question. Well, really, my market is so niche. And, you know, I'm a solopreneur right now. So I have a relatively small portion of the pie. So it's, it's pretty easy to figure out where to start. Again, if, if someone came to me and just said, I need some kind of cultural help, that's too vague. Uh, mm -hmm. So usually, Again, I sit down with almost everyone and, and talk them through it. And I'll talk about, you know, what do you need to do when you travel abroad or work with foreigners? What uh, tasks are causing you difficulty? What are your pain points? And through that conversation, then we can pinpoint uh, some training program, which could be anything from presentations, content creating. Some people just want to for example, be a better negotiator. So we'll go through a New York Times bestselling book on negotiation, we'll, we'll role play, and you know, by the end of that program, they're gonna have a whole new toolkit on global negotiation techniques. 
Are there any parts of global negotiation that tend to be hardest for Japanese people? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Negotiation's hard for me. <laughs> I mean, well, a lot of, <laughs> you know, it's, it's something that most people avoid whatever country uh, they're from or whatever culture they're from. So um, I can't really, mm-hmm. I don't want to really say negotiation is hard for Japanese people. I think it's something that's hard for, for everyone. But where uh, I can create value is, you know, I, I acknowledge that negotiation is hard, but then I'll say, look, these are the tools that have helped me. These are tools that are not popular in Japan or are unknown. For example, how many people in Japan have read the book, Never Split the Difference, and really applied those techniques? So I'll say this is one of the most popular resources in the States, and you're going to work in the States. Let's go through this book. Let's go through these techniques. I know it's going to be hard, but you're going to have a toolkit to get you through this. So um, that's uh, how we approach those situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also don't like negotiating, so I should probably just learn how to do it myself, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's nothing to be ashamed of. I, I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you look, do research on how people feel about negotiation, it's, it's negotiation in a way is confrontation, and, and most people want to avoid confrontation. So it's, it's difficult, but... As with any challenge, if you have a toolkit and you can break this difficult concept down to smaller parts and practice those parts, uh, it can get easier for all of us. So you mentioned that you're st- you are a solopreneur, so you deliver all of these trainings by yourself? Uh, typically, however, sometimes I will partner with my network. So you might have heard on other recent podcasts that I'm quick to partner with people to deliver bigger training programs if necessary. I'm also not shy to admit that I work with middlemen to to engage with larger companies that normally wouldn't work with me. Uh, so I'm a solopreneur, but uh, I, part, I'm, I willingly partner in order to create more value for bigger clients. With these larger Japanese companies, as a small solopreneur, it- it's generally difficult to get on their radar or to get them to buy into this sort of thing? How does that usually go? In a country that's, that's famous for reputation and branding, it's incredibly difficult as a solopreneur to work with major, major Japanese company. Now, if you have the right network, you might be able to get into certain sections of that company. So that's a strategy. If, if, you know, you can work with an autonomous small group, maybe uh, an, an HR, a section of HR or something like that. Uh, that can happen. But to be the single uh, source of cross-cultural communication or marketing for a huge firm, um, not only is it difficult, but it probably doesn't make a lot of sense for that firm to work only with a solopreneur because it's just too much work. They they would just absorb you um, into their their system. And Honestly, that's how I ended up working for the ACCJ. I started as a freelance consultant, but the organization was so huge and they had so much work for me. Uh, I eventually became the marketing manager and was working exclusively for them for almost two years. Yeah, especially if it's a very large company, it would almost just make sense for them to try to get you to join them rather than have you stay out as kind of a contractor. That makes a lot of sense. Exactly, exactly. So then are there any core competencies and skills that you try to make sure that all of your clients 
really master before they're finished working with you? Um, it's, that's a good question. I think one core competency would be personal branding. That, that's something that runs through whatever you're doing regarding giving a presentation, negotiating, writing, your, your, your brand seeps into all of that. So that would be the core competency that I focus on. You know, uh, what is your, your communication style? What is your writing style? Uh, how does your LinkedIn profile appear? Does it appear professional, for example? So yeah, personal branding would be the core competency. Beyond that, the, the trainings that I give and the coaching that I give is so customized that, you know, almost every case is slightly different. So then this idea of personal branding in Japan, I was chatting with Natalie Meyer in a previous episode, and she talked about how traditionally in Japan, people tended to want a little bit more anonymity online, and it's starting to change. People are being more open to sharing the profile pictures, to putting their names to what they say. But has that been something that you've had difficulty with getting people to participate more visibly in developing their own brands? Absolutely. And what you said is exactly right. People do prefer to be anonymous and it's, it's hard to put, put yourself out there. Uh, however, that kind of goes back to what we previously talked about is in order to achieve certain things, you have to put yourself out there a little bit. And uh, the clients that I work with, they, they need to be, again, open-minded and, and willing to experiment with that a little bit. And, and I relate to them. I, I, you know, no one believes me, but I'm introverted. I would rather be super anonymous, but I have some big goals and, and, and visions and things I want to achieve. And I realize that in order to achieve those things, I do have to be out there and, uh, you know, uh, I, I have to write and publish and, you know, talk to people, you know, on podcasts and things like that. So uh, part of overcoming that is, is, again, analyzing what people want to achieve and then being honest with them, being real and saying, OK, if you want to achieve this, if you want to be a thought leader, then you're, you're going to need your picture and a profile on, on LinkedIn. That's just part of the steps that go there. Now, uh, where. coaching and communication comes in is as they put themselves out there, I also coach them on the safeguards that they need to take uh, to protect their privacy as much as possible. So it's not a matter of just throwing everything out in public and, and going wild. Part of the coaching process is doing so in the most responsible way possible. Going back to what you said about LinkedIn, in Japan, do people tend to use LinkedIn differently than what's normal in the States? Are there any unique qualities to LinkedIn in Japan? Well, I, I hate to say it, but the, the biggest difference is not enough people use it at all. <laughs> um, link, LinkedIn is a pretty standard platform globally. So, you know, there aren't too many different ways you can, you can use it. The problem is, is not enough people are using it. And they're, they're still trying to reach global audiences um, on different platforms professionally. And they're, they're hitting a wall because they're not on LinkedIn where all of the global professionals are. And that's where the global conversations are, are happening. So getting over that resistance to LinkedIn is, is the first thing we need to focus on. Do you have any idea about why there might be that resistance to LinkedIn? Is it just that 
it hasn't been common, so it's difficult to kind of get that traction, or is it something else? Well, these these are all all theories at this point, but um, right now the conventional wisdom that I read makes sense. Um, you know, LinkedIn unfortunately doesn't seem like a good cultural fit to the way Japanese people seek jobs and the way Japanese people network. So, uh, and these aren't my ideas; these are these are out. On the internet, but the conventional wisdom is that uh, Japanese business networking is closely mixed in with personal relationships, and Facebook serves that need very well. You know, when you go to a, a Japanese networking event and connect with someone on Facebook, you've got their business card and their business identity, and then you can go and see online their family and what they're eating and their their vacations, and and build that Japanese style relationships. So yeah, I think the conventional wisdom that's out there that makes sense. The other side of that is, you know, a Japanese resume is, is completely different than a Western resume. And like you mentioned before, a lot of people don't feel comfortable putting their achievements out into the public and showcasing that to everyone. So yeah, I think that's the obstacle. I do have seminars and training programs that focus on LinkedIn and, and explain to clients that, you know, you don't have to do it this way. You can control how much you put out there. You can, you don't have to connect with everybody. And it's, it's a really important tool for networking globally. So it's, it's an uphill battle, but um, I do see progress, uh, especially with LinkedIn company pages. I'm, I'm seeing more and more Japanese people more and more Japanese companies establish company pages, and that seems to be sending a green light to employers or employees, excuse me, uh, that it's okay to have a LinkedIn profile and connect with the company. So I don't have any hard data, but anecdotally, I, I, I am seeing progress. It's definitely interesting to see, even if there isn't data on it yet, just to imagine how these different cultural forces make such a big difference in how people behave online. It's very interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. So then you talked quite a bit about personal branding, but I was curious if there are any other ways that marketing ties into the cross-cultural communication skills that you teach. Sure. So regarding marketing and cross-cultural communication, it, surprisingly, these two actually are complementary. So I'll be honest, a lot of times people will look at my website and say, you know, marketing and coaching, how does that mix? But you have to remember, uh, marketing is a form of communication. It's, it's communicating between businesses and customers. And of course, as a section of communication, there is some overlap. So for example, let's say... I am setting up a Western-focused social media management system for a client. So, you know, I go in and set up maybe three accounts and connect them with Buffer. And, and this, in this case, they want to manage it and operate it themselves. I'm just doing the setup. However, once they have everything in place, they're going to need the kind of cultural knowledge, you know, what, what can they say on these platforms when they are targeting America? What's appropriate? What's not appropriate, for example? You know, what are the, the latest marketing techniques? And so that's when it all 
starts to come together and uh, overlap. And then additionally, if I am managing the accounts, if I'm creating the content that they're saying, if I'm coming up with ideas, there's an element of cross-cultural communication built into that. So for example, especially if you're dealing with America, you have to be really sensitive about what you are uh, tweeting about or posting on LinkedIn. And, and this is the number one area where these two fields combine or collide. So I'm constantly guiding clients and saying, oh, we might not want to post about this topic right now. It's a little bit too sensitive. Uh, or you might want to say this, you know, very carefully with these vocabulary words, um, you know, just to make sure that our message isn't misunderstood. So that's how kind of the cross-cultural communication and marketing can overlap. Yeah. If marketing is just communication. So learning how to communicate interculturally would definitely be very tightly connected to that. And also going back to personal branding as well, you know, if you're into personal branding, you're marketing yourself. So if you are branding yourself to uh, appear in other cultures and work with other cultures, that is a kind of individual marketing effort. Mm -hmm. For sure. So I know that you usually work with Japanese people looking outward internationally, but do you have any insights into how personal branding would work for maybe a foreigner in Japan? Mm, good question. Good question. I didn't, I, I don't really think of this from a personal branding lens, but now that you mention it, this probably is a form of personal branding. But if you're a foreigner coming into Japan and, and hopefully you want to do something here long term, I think it's important to project that as part of who you are. And uh, I've said that I've said this many times before that a big part of that is, is learning the language again, not perfecting it, but uh, learning the language. So you are comfortable enough to at least have polite daily conversation. That's a huge signal to show that, you know, you're serious about Japan. Another way is just being there for your clients through, you know, the good and the bad times, you know, Japan overall is pretty stable, but you know, we have economic slumps. We're affected by economic and natural disasters and all kinds of crises. And, you know, if you can be there for your clients and support them through the good times and the bad times, again, that's another signal that, you know, you're here to stay and you're not just coming into the country to extract wealth or, or something like that, but you're part of the, the community. Because as, as you know, the culture here is, is all about in-group and out-group. And sure, a lot of people say that, you know, foreigners can never be part of the in-group or just because we look different or come from a different place that will never fit in. And you'll, you'll always be viewed as a foreigner, but I think if you commit, you can always be welcome here. And, and I've certainly felt welcome here over the past you know, nearly 12 years. And that's one of the reasons I'm still here is because it feels so welcome, welcoming. So yeah, yeah, learn the language and support your clients through the good and the bad. And, and I think that uh, you'll be ready to go. That's really helpful. So developing a personal brand revolves around other important things in Japan, like investing in long-term relationships. That definitely makes sense. Absolutely. And, and of course, you know, there's so much to be said in, 
and, and but I think a lot of it's already out there. You know, you, you want to do your homework and you know learn about the culture and you know be observant, read the atmosphere, you know learn how things are done here and understand those and emulate those things and and then start to share your your own ideas and i've written about this in a few of my articles and i'm going to write about it more in the future um, but that that's a very important thing to consider well i'm definitely looking forward to seeing more about that myself thank you do you have any personal examples of communication breakdowns that you've experienced in japan due to cultural differences at the risk of repeating myself and <laughs> but um the biggest one I see goes back to networking. So uh, a common, as, as I hinted at earlier, you know, let's say we're in Tokyo, we go to an inter international networking event and it's probably 50% foreigners and 50% bilingual Japanese people. And you, you're striking up a conversation and then the time to part ways and exchange contact information comes. And, you know, most of the, the, the people on the foreign side are connecting via LinkedIn, where everyone on the Japanese side is asking us for our Facebook information. And this is not, you know, 100% true all the time, but generally speaking, foreigners are going to be reluctant to connect over Facebook or Line or things like that. And Japanese people aren't going to have a LinkedIn profile. So what happens is because of that cultural divide, you know, at best you end up exchanging emails and we all know what happens when you exchange emails. You maybe follow up, but then that contact just disappears. Where if you could connect over LinkedIn, you know, you're going to be seeing that contact's activity. You're going to be reminded of their presence. It's going to be much easier to keep in touch. So this cultural difference works both ways. So what that means is if you are a Japanese professional and you want to grow your global network, then you're going to need a LinkedIn presence. If you're a foreigner and you want to grow your Japanese network, then you're going to need some kind of Facebook presence. Maybe you need to make uh, restart your profile and, and um, you know, set it up. So you're comfortable sharing it with Japanese people, or you could do what I do and start a brand page, for example, which is kind of my welcome welcome Matt to Japanese uh, people who want to connect with me. So uh, on both sides, that's the, the, the number one cultural breakdown that I see in the business scene. And I'm definitely part of the problem on that because I barely use my Facebook. For a millennial, I'm just a failure at social media. Is <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know. Depending on the network, I, I might call that a success. <laughs> you know? Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. But and and again in in your case, I don't I certainly don't want to pressure anyone to use Facebook. I'm I'm not a big fan of the platform myself, but there are ways you can use it that still protect your privacy and still allow uh Japanese uh people to at least follow you or connect with you or have a way to send you a message to to get in contact. And and that's really all you have to set up. I'm I'm not recommending, you know, putting out all your food pictures and personal information or anything like that, but it's just like having um, kind of a, a Japan Maroguchi or, or, or window, <laughs> uh, you know, support window. And where if, if um, a client has you on their mind, they can at least go to Facebook and, and, and send you a message. So 
I guess for all that's listening and for you, if, if you don't want to go too deep into Facebook and you're a, a business professional, set up a brand page. And, and um, that way you don't have to kind of get into it too deep, but people can always find you. Yeah, that's great. I think that's super helpful. Just start small. You don't have to commit your life to Facebook. You can just do whatever you feel comfortable with. Right, right. I, I call them welcome, welcome mats. The, the, the networks that the social network and, and for, forgive me if I'm ranting here, but I think a lot of us in, in any culture, we fall into the trap of our social network or social media tools running our lives. But we, re, we need to remember that they're tools for us. So if any network, Facebook, Twitter, be it whatever, is not serving you as a tool, then it's okay to minimize your in, engagement with that network. So if a network is reciprocating your efforts, and in my case, this is my relationship with LinkedIn, it, it, it brings as much value as I put into it, then that's where you wanna be spending your time and effort. So uh, there's no shame in minimizing your use of a social, social media platform if it's having you know, a negative impact on your life. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. I think everybody needs a little bit of permission to take or leave social media as they see fit because there's just so much out there. <laughs> yeah, my, my pleasure. Anytime. I mean, we, we could do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll have to. <laughs> so then if you were chatting with somebody who wanted to go to Japan for business and you really only had time to teach them one thing about the country to be more effective there, what would you teach them? Wow. I've said this before, but it's, it's, it's so worth repeating. And, and this, is, this is targeting entrepreneurs and people who want to start a business here or, or start a career here. And that is, Japan is not a, a country or market that you can take lightly or treat lightly. You can't treat Japan as a cash grab or, or simply the next place to do business because it's the third world's third largest economy. It doesn't work that way. This market has vast potential. You know, there's so much opportunity here, but to access that potential, it requires, you know, a love for the country. It requires dedication and you have to spend your time doing the research and customizing your products and services for the country. You can't just bring over what happens to be working in your country and just try to do the same thing here. You can't bring over poorly localized products or business ideas. So um, that, that's my most important message is, you know, if you're here for the long term, you, you really have to commit and you've, you've got to love the country because it is a unique market that, again, offers great rewards, but requires a great investment. So then is there anything else you'd like to share with my audience before we head out? Um, well, you, you really provided such a wide range of, of challenging questions. So I think we've just about covered everything. You know, I, I guess if I could do one thing, I'd just reiterate that last message that I said, you know, do your homework, whatever country you're coming from. If you're thinking about doing business here, maybe find someone like me in your country to help you bridge that uh, cultural gap uh, before coming here. So don't go it alone find some support, find people that can help you successfully uh, come and enjoy life and business in Japan. Mm -hmm, for sure. I definitely agree that it's important to take things seriously, especially. Right. Yeah. Yep. 
yeah and have fun too it's 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 a it's an amazingly fun uh country uh just you know do your homework when it comes to business yes there are things you can do to help minimize some of the um situations that you'll inevitably find yourself in that may be less than (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And um, if you don't mind, that reminds me of a, of a concrete piece of advice that uh, I can give for those who have never been here. Of course. And are thinking of living here. You know, I know, given the state of the world, you can't do it right now. But when things open up, come here on a vacation or two uh, before you commit your whole life to living here. Because if you, you know, study a little bit of the language and travel here, you know, once or twice, you're going to get a good idea of whether or not this country is a good fit for you. And if, if you feel good after all of that and you have the, an open mind, as we talked about earlier, you're, you're really going to have a blast here. And on the other hand, if you study the language and travel and, and it just doesn't feel like a good fit, you know, don't force it. You're, you're probably not going to be happy in that case. So uh, don't, don't hesitate to try out, you know, try Japan on for size, so to speak. I think that's an excellent piece of advice. Thank you for that. My pleasure. All right. And thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed chatting with you. And I feel like we just got a lot of awesome information out there. So I'm excited to share it. Yeah. And and thank you for the opportunity. And again, thank you for asking about this unique side of my business that I don't get to talk about too much. So I really appreciate the chance to to share all this information. Perfect. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a good one. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about Anthony, and be sure to follow him on LinkedIn to continue learning even more about personal development and success in Japan. Please remember to go ahead and subscribe and leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo!